What's up? My name is Josiah Haken. I've been working with homeless folks for over a decade. I'm convinced one of the main reasons we have not been able to solve the homelessness crisis in the United States of America is because we fundamentally don't understand why it happens or what can be done about it. In this podcast, I interview friends of mine who have experienced homelessness firsthand, experts who have dedicated years of their lives providing services and resources to the unhoused community, as well as theologians and advocates who can help us rethink the issue altogether. In case you haven't heard, I'm also releasing a book on July 29th called Neighbors with No Doors, The Truth About Homelessness and How You Can Make a Difference. Because I believe that people with good intentions who don't know what to do often end up doing nothing at all. I do not expect you to agree with me or my guests on every opinion that is shared on this podcast or in my book. But my hope is that the conversation alone will inspire and equip you to engage your homeless neighbors with confidence and compassion. Welcome to the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Josiah Haken. Welcome to the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. I have an incredible, incredible guest with me this time around. Uh, this is Kevin Nye. Kevin works in homeless services, homeless services, apparently I can, easy for me to say, and advocacy in Los Angeles and is a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary. Kevin also writes on the intersections of ju- theology, justice, and equity and pop culture, which makes him a perfect fit for everything we're talking about on this podcast. Uh, he was a contributing author for Theology and the Marvel Universe and is the founder of Theophany, a blog and YouTube channel looking at the intersection of God and movies. And Kevin is an author whose book is coming out, I believe, this summer. Am I right about that? It's called August. August. There you go. Is that what you said? Anyway, I'm excited. Guys, this is amazing. Kevin's a rock star. If you don't follow him on Twitter, you need to. Amazing insights, amazing perspective. Kevin, thank you for joining the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. So happy to be here. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get to talk to you. Just so now. Kevin, start off, start us off. I mean, as you, you know, may or may not know, um, you know, we're, we're, I started this podcast to try to help uh, listeners um, understand, you know, homelessness better and be more empathetic and, and see the humans um, behind the issue. Um, and so I'd love to start off by asking you the same question I, I ask a lot of uh, all of my guests, which is, as you look back on your life, wh- what was your first interaction with the reality of homelessness? Like what was, as you look back, whether it was as a kid or, or whatever, like as you think back, what was your, the, the first time it like, became real to you that there are human beings around us who do not have a place to call home? Hmm. It's a great question. It's what I've been thinking about a lot because, you know, I wrote my book on this and something I've noticed as I looked back on my life is how much there was kind of this through line, even though I never anticipated going uh, whoa, whoa, into hold, homeless hold, hold services. On. Hold the phone. Uh, hold the phone. You didn't plan as a child to go into homeless services? <laughs> I mean, I know for me... I remember when I was in first, no, I'm just totally kidding. Like I didn't just think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was not on my, uh, my first writing samples as a kid. when they said what I want to be when I grow up. Uh, nope, I didn't write that. Uh, yeah, no, I think the best I can guess uh, the first memories I have is 
I'm just seeing uh, people asking for for money and food on street corners. My the church I grew up in is right off of the highway, so there's pretty dependably somebody um, at one of the four corners there of, uh, or I guess two corners of of off ramps, um, and so I, I I think that also that association of kind of going to church and seeing people was there um, as well as we would normally go out to eat after church. And there was, um, you know, always the question of, Oh, we have leftovers. Should we take them home or should we give them to somebody on the way? Um, so yeah, I think the, where are you, where are you from? Yeah, Tell me ahead. about like the context of where you're, you know, growing. cause a lot of people listening are like from like suburban towns or like Midwest or, you know, whatever. And they're seeing homeless people, on their way to church is not a normal thing. So tell, tell us a little bit about kind of the context of where you, you know, seeing this, this reality all around you when you were as, as going to church. Yeah. So this would have been, this is in Tempe, Arizona. So um, at the time, not, not a huge unhoused population there, but uh, increasingly so right now, but, but at that time it, it wouldn't have been super common, especially as I lived sort of down in like, South Tempe, which is more of the suburban part. So, and what was your kind of the the attitude of your you know going to again church church family? I can I could you know I grew up in the church. Uh, now I grew up in West Africa. My parents were missionaries, so um, probably a little different than Tempe, Arizona, maybe a smidge. Um, but but, but <laughs> like, tell me like what was the what was the kind of the assumptions that you were brought up in in terms of thinking about homelessness or homeless people? What were some of the narratives that you uh, kind of either consciously or unconsciously absorbed through your upbringing and through your, you know, the surroundings? It's interesting because, yeah, again, I, I'm thinking so much about this, but I, I I can't even necessarily remember like a moment where somebody told me something that stuck with me as much as it just felt there were things that were said and there were things that were unsaid. And so one of the sort of said things was like, Oh, you should like, if you have leftover food, you should give it. And that's, you know, that's a generous thing to do. That's maybe even a Christian thing to do. Uh, maybe you give them money. Maybe you don't, depending on who you talk to. Um, but certainly no, no real interrogation or conversation about, you know, why that person might be in that situation or why, a lot of people are increasingly in that situation. Those are sort of the unsaid elements that, and as a kid, I wasn't, I wasn't exactly interrogating those myself either. I, I can speculate as to what the answers might've been based on experiences later on in adulthood, but really I wasn't, I wasn't getting those messages much in church more as like, it was mm. just absent that conversation. So, you know, you're, so you're, you know, seeing people coming in and out of church, um, and, and seeing people on the highway and, and should we give our meals, uh, leftovers? Um, when did that transition for you in terms of, uh, becoming some like sort of an issue that you were sort of planning around as a family, but actually became personal for you, uh, where this, this reality of homelessness became, um, something that, you know, you were so passionate about and, and have been involved with now for many years. Yeah, so when I was in college, um, I went to college to study theology and ministry, and I was part of a 
a program that would give me scholarship money in return for hours worked at a local church. Um, the last two years that I was there, uh, I was um, interning at a church that kind of was considered the like Compassionate Ministries church. They were located in the kind of out, out, right outside of the urban core of Oklahoma City. Um, a lot of poverty and homelessness concentrated there and they they had a church, but they really were more known for the, the nonprofit side, OKC Compassion, that just ran meals and um, recovery groups and stuff for the unhoused population. So for two years, I was doing essentially my, my ministry internship work at that nonprofit. And that's where, and again, I didn't plan on that. It kind of actually happened by default, by accident. Um, it was sort of weirdly the the easy route at that time as I was trying to navigate where where I was headed in my my career plan. And uh, yeah, so I ended up spending two years just mainly hanging out with with unhoused people in Oklahoma City around meals or around groups. And uh, and again, I had no desire at the end of that that like, oh, this is my career. I was just like, oh, that's a thing that I did. And okay, now I'm going to seminary. Um, and then in seminary, again, for an internship there, um, at the time, my I was making money for seminary by working as a barista, and I found a church that was- I totally did that. Institute. I was at Starbucks for nine months as a barista before oh I started working at City Relief. That's amazing. I feel like the barista to social worker pipeline <laughs> the, the, is real. The gravitational pull uh, is, very, is very strong from the barista yes. to, the, to the social work field. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we don't talk about that enough. <laughs> um, no, that's for real. Uh, but yeah, so I found this, uh, this church um, that was doing a coffee shop catering ministry thing where they were... Uh, using it as a way to train uh, homeless youth in barista skills to, because it's, L, this, and this is in LA now. So, I mean, there's a coffee shop on every corner. Um, and I was like the fancy kind of barista that could like pour designs in your latte and stuff. So it was like, okay, um, I really like this intersection of, of faith and a justice thing and this thing that I'm already kind of good at. So I, I worked with that for a couple of years. And uh, so again, hindsight, I, I see this whole through line, uh, but I was completely unaware of it at the time. And then by the time I finished seminary and uh, was not seeing a trajectory toward uh, church work, I thought, okay, it's Los Angeles. You know, I want to want to make a difference, want to do something good with my life. So uh, I got into Got into homelessness. So tell me about the first person, like, looking back, it can be in Oklahoma City or it can be in LA, LA but tell me about like the a, a person that you met early on. Because then again, I know that when those early years, right, when you first start doing uh, this kind of work, is there, I know for me anyway, and I know for a lot of people I've worked with, there are for faces and names that that stick out as, as transformative or... Um, where like you just felt like it's almost like, you know, that perfect like baseball swing hitting the ball, you know, like where you have that encounter with somebody where you're like, Oh wow, this is, 
this is more than I thought it was. Can you tell us a story that about about that that kind of encounter that you had early on? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, his name's Albert. Um, he's I met him in Oklahoma City as part of this um, this ministry that I was working with, and um, you know I met him, and we were just he was sort of somebody that I got comfortable talking to, and so when I'd show up, I'd look for him and sit next to him, and. Um, as part of my work, the pastor decided that, you know, each of the interns should really pick a couple people to be like mentors to, which I mean, thinking back is so ridiculous. I was like 19 years old. Like I have anything to like mentor, you know, a a 57 year old man who's lived most of his life in poverty and homelessness. Like, right. Uh, the mentorship went the other direction, certainly. Um, but yeah, I just, I learned so much about him and by extension about, or at least, um, my, my perception was changed about homelessness. Um, something that was really amazing and unique about him was that he, he loved poetry. He wrote poetry, um, and in getting to know him and, trying to figure out like, what do I have to offer him at all? I thought, well, maybe like, maybe we could get some of his poetry published. And um, so a lot of my work was just spent like getting him to write down his poetry and like typing it up on the computer and formatting it in a way he liked, trying to get some like dignity behind it. And um, I never did crack the, the publishing piece because I knew nothing about that at the time. Um, but I remember I... I did look up poetry readings around the city and I took him to a couple and he got to stand up and recite his poetry, which he knew all by heart. So he'd written so much of it uh, when he was incarcerated. Um, And it was just such a interesting experience because these, all of these poetry gatherings were like usually 10 to 15, like older white women. (laughs) And then Albert, me sitting next to like, yeah, to Albert, who's, yeah, like in his 50s, black, uh, like clearly uh, somebody who, you know, experiences homelessness. Um, but but that was the, the kind of like the fun and the, the joy of it was sort of leaning into the ways in which that is out of place and uh, kind of defying expectations That's in amazing. that way. I, I can totally see, I can have a, a picture of that scene playing out in my head and it's, and it's beautiful. I love it. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously another question that I'm, you know, trying to wrestle with and trying to leverage this podcast to do is to help people rethink the narratives around homelessness. And um, so I guess another question I would have for you is, you know, throughout your you know years of working in homeless services, and I promise, like I want to hear all about your book and and tell you know people how to go find it. Um, but to start, like, what are some things that you've witnessed firsthand around like the stereotypes or the narratives that about homelessness that we get absolutely wrong? Like, like if there's if if there's something that you could say that would instantly stick uh to the listeners whereas like someone's going to walk away from this conversation and go like if i could believe one thing that kevin says around homelessness it would be this what would you say what is it that we get wrong about homelessness in general as a society um and then and then what can 
what can we do uh, individually, whether I'm, you know, in, in the profession of homeless services or in an organization or a church setting, but if you're just like a barista or you're, you know, a finance accountant, like <laughs> what can you do about it to kind of upend and correct the, the, the stereotype or the stigma that, that uh, we get wrong? Yeah. Well, if you're a barista, I would just say wait a couple of years until you're a social worker. <laughs> it's only then, a matter of time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just hang on. Um, no, I mean, obviously there's, there's so many, but I think the one that feels the most urgent um, that you're dealing with in New York and I'm dealing with in LA and uh, folks all over are dealing with um, the one that really needs the most combating is the myth that people do not want services and that people want to be homeless. Um, that, that myth drives so much policy, um, or at least is, I'm, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm more suspicious of the people making the policy that they don't actually believe that. But I think the people that support that policy and allow that policy do believe that. Um, that ultimately nobody wants to live their life on the streets, right? And the reason that people do is because they don't see a better option and don't have access to a better option. Uh, and so all of this, this movement in New York, in LA, in Portland, Seattle, all these kind of major hubs to uh, make sleeping outside illegal and to make and to justify that by building mass shelters is so misguided and so thoroughly misunderstands what puts people out on the streets or what causes somebody to choose, air quotes on choose, um, to sleep outside. And, and again, and we've already done this. Yeah. We've, we've been here. We've done that. We've tried it. And it doesn't work. And we're, we're essentially just going to be warehousing people in, in these shelters solely for the benefit of us not having to see and encounter people who we don't want to see and encounter, uh, or we're going to incarcerate them, uh, which all of this movement that we have in this country to, to decarcerate, to, you know, kind of try to combat mass incarceration um, we're, we're going in exactly the opposite direction right now. Yeah. I, so I, 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 amen and amen. I mean, one of the things I've, I've said recently, uh, on Twitter and otherwise is like the only thing that Republicans and Democrats have in common is that the, neither of them wants a homeless person near their train station. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's a, yeah. effectively, you know, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what party you're from or what, what worldview you have. Um, there seems to be homelessness seems to be, sort of the great unifier uh, of, of, uh, of public policy around, um, you know, discriminatory practices. Yeah. And um, I know recently in, in Newark, New Jersey, we, you know, there was an ordinance that went out against, feed, you know, a feeding ban um, in and around the train station, which right. we, you know, fought and, um, you know, tried to get the press involved. And, um, and it actually, it worked uh, in Newark, uh, at least temporarily. Again, I don't know if it's going to stick because there's so many cities around mm -hmm. the country that are um, continuing to, to, you know, put forward this sort of criminalization approach. Um, but anyway, I think I think it's, you know, which which follows up to the, the second part of my question is like what, you know, for those of us who, you know, 
are aware of the fact that these are human beings who, you know, if you're a person of faith, if you're a Christian, you would say is made in the image of God who has unsurpassable worth. And like, what can we do to try to fight that narrative and, and show up um, in, in these complex settings and in these places when, you know, people are getting really upset and, and, you know, people with homes are, um, you know, protesting the placement of shelters and low-income housing in their neighborhoods and all these ordinances make it so hard for anyone to get, you know, any progress and find access and the cost of living is, I mean, it's scary. I mean, the cost of rent has actually risen since the pandemic. Like you would think in places like New York and LA that the pandemic would have led to a complete drop in, in the rental market, but they had the almost the exact opposite effect. People are now renting rental prices are skyrocketing rather than decreasing, which is crazy. Um, so anyway, so what what can we do? What, what What's your advice to the person who's listening who says, I want to help, I just don't know what to do or how, where to start? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really important the way that you point out that like homelessness does not follow party politics. I think it's really, it's really easy for a lot of folks to sort of identify where they land politically and say, okay, this is the vein that I'm in and now I can kind of vote along these lines. Uh, I like to say that Homelessness is controversial, but it's not divisive in the sense that it doesn't divide along Republican and Democrat. Like, but if you were to say something like abortion or immigration, you can pretty much pick out what each party feels about that. With homelessness, it's just not the case. Um, so I think the way to sort of get get right on that issue is is really to find a way to practice community and solidarity with unhoused people in your neighborhood. Um, and that's hard and scary for people because we like to make our opinions about things on, you know, through media and like unhoused people don't have the same access to social media. Like you actually have to share space with your bodies and have conversations. But I, I really think it's crucial. And that's not to say that there's not, you know, good accounts and things you can follow on social media. Usually there's mutual aid groups or advocacy groups that, that are doing the work and really dig into local politicians and policies and figure them out. So seek those out. Um, but really we need to, we need to get to know our neighbors. We need to, we need to know people's names, know people's stories and know how things affect them. I, I really think that getting involved in the like, furthest down ballot local politics just makes a huge difference because I mean, there's things that Joe Biden and and Congress can do to make homelessness better and worse on a large scale, but truly like so much of what affects the livelihood of unhoused people happens at like the city council level or the county supervisor level or the mayoral level. Um, And actually pretty much doesn't matter where you are in the country. Any affordable housing that has to get built has to go through a city council. So like knowing who your city council people are, knowing when to show up <laughs> to, to advocate for something to happen. Um, that stuff really deeply matters. And it's the stuff that largely we don't pay attention to when we think about politics. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so tell me more about the work that you're doing, like you've been doing for the last six years. Um, you know, the, you know, tell us about kind of the impact uh, the organization you work with is having and, and how, you know, what you've seen there. And again, if you have any specific, uh, I just know that people resonate with uh, with stories of impact, you know, and, and, and again, if the best way I think to humanize uh, folks is to help people remember that these are uh, real people with real stories. So um, yeah, tell us about the work that you're doing for the last six years. And then we'll, you know, I want to hear about uh, what the, the book that you're writing and, and how we can, how we can get our hands on it. Yeah. Yeah. So the place I work is called the center in Hollywood. Uh, we're a nonprofit in Hollywood, as you could have guessed. Um, when I started, I joined our community wellness program, uh, just as a kind of frontline worker. Um, our program is primarily in reach, which means we, we have a space that we open up to people to come in. Uh, and our goal has always been to be as low barrier as possible. We don't do intakes. We don't do, have requirements. Uh, people can just come in as long as they're safe uh, and hang out for a while. We serve people coffee, we play games, we get to know people, we hold groups, um, some of which are like on the life skills and recovery end, but others are on the like expressive and like art and writing and improv. Um, so my job for many years was just to facilitate that space and to lead some of those groups. Um, and so that's where I really built that, that value of kind of community and solidarity and getting to know people where they're at. And the whole point of it, you know, outside of just the value of getting to know people was that we really believe that community ends homelessness, that um, while we know that housing is is crucial, we know that healthcare, mental health care, substance use treatment, all these things are absolutely important aspects of addressing homelessness, that none of those things uh, work without supportive community. Um, and that ultimately homelessness is as much a crisis of isolation as it is anything else. Um, and so what's been really exciting about this work is we've been able to build on our nonprofit so many other services like housing, case management. Um, we've opened an on-site health clinic. We've, we do housing retention for people once they get into housing. Um, so many other services, but that are sort of built off of this kind of community first approach. Um, and the, the way that we've seen it be successful because of like the relational sort of cash we've built with folks over time is, is amazing because ultimately the people that come in our doors are the ones who largely have been shut out by the other organizations as too difficult to work with or they don't want help or, you know, all the things that get you excluded from services yeah. everywhere else. Those are the people that end up, you know, in our gates. And um, I like to say we kind of, we specialize <laughs> in that population. I, I love, I, um, I love how you just sort of just riff off that a little bit. Cause for me, I think it's, Community first. I, I, so I'm I'm friends with Deb Paget, who wrote the book Housing First. Uh, she's a professor at NYU, and um, and one of the things that she says a lot, which I love, is that housing first was never meant to be housing only. Um, and so right. I feel like what you're talking about here in terms of community and you know offering those sort of that holistic uh, approach 
is super important. Um, and definitely is, is, you know, and, and when, what you're talking about in terms of trust resonates with me so much. Cause I know you've probably heard people talk about how, you know, it takes, I don't know, what do they say? Like 27 or 23, it depends who you're talking to encounters with someone before they are receptive to, to, uh, services. Um, and I'm like, well, that's did not been our experience. Like if you can actually like meet someone's needs right away and show them dignity and, and treat them with compassion and empathy, uh, I'm pretty sure we can actually shorten that. Like, I don't think it actually takes that long. I've, I've found that most, most homeless <laughs> folks are very receptive, um, when you actually listen to what they ask for. <laughs> Yeah, when you're actually meeting the needs that they're articulating for themselves. Yeah, yeah. so it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, whatever, how many to- dozens of times it might take to convince them or force them to accept something that they weren't, you know, not really open to. Um, I've found that, you know, just treating them with, you know, meeting the needs that they express and, and listening to them, you know, can shorten that time. Um, yeah, and I, I want to really contextualize, too, when I say community first, that's not... Uh, not in opposition Absolutely. at all to housing first. I'm, I'm a huge, and I know you know that, yeah. but I, for your listeners, like I'm a huge advocate of housing first. The, the only problem with housing first is you need right. housing <laughs> and your housing, your housing first methodology is only as good as your housing stock. Right. And in Los Angeles, we don't have it. And so what should happen is that anyone who's on the street, we offer immediately an apartment, and then we surround them with community and supportive services. But because we don't have the housing, we have to start somewhere else. Like our organization recognizes we can't just wait (laughs) until people get housing or get matched to an outreach worker or a case manager to suddenly provide services. Like we're, in a sense, we're triaging life on the streets until the housing gets built, if it ever does, right? Um, we're we're making sure people stay alive and connected and well for whatever does or doesn't come down the line. Yeah, thank you for for qualifying that because I, I think it's super important. I, I recently was quoted in a um, an article where I was making that nuanced comparison in terms of like again, I'm I'm 100 in favor of housing first as a philosophy, but I think your point is is as well is taken that you if without housing and housing first all you have is first <laughs> that doesn't yes it's just first I, I don't know what to tell you what it is but it's just it's uh certainly not an effective strategy for addressing homelessness without without housing um but it is interesting because i think there's you know in new york city anyway we have uh what i would describe as a shelter first approach um and you know just it's amazing how many people have a um, a misunderstanding of the difference between housing and shelter. Um, so tell me, tell me a little right. bit about what, what does that mean to you in terms of the difference between like a housing first approach versus a shelter first approach? Yeah. I mean, I could talk all day about that because really right now what we're seeing in all of these same cities is a movement away from housing first towards shelter first and, and what's really an unfortunate co-opting of housing first language. I think if I were to sum up like the state of homelessness policy in the United States right now, it would be that like politicians have learned to use the language and completely <laughs> undermine what it actually is supposed to mean. 
Um, so yeah, housing first means somebody is offered an apartment that's theirs, uh, that they have a key to, that they have a lease to, uh, and then are offered optional supportive services kind of tailored to their specific wants and needs. Shelter first, which is largely the policy we've been doing for like 60 years now, is the idea that you have to kind of earn your way up a staircase of deservedness <laughs> until you get housing, right? So if you're on the streets, you have to meet some sort of qualifications to get into a shelter. While you're in the shelter, you work with somebody and Basically, if you follow all the rules, however low barrier or high barrier those rules are, depending on your city and who's running it and all of those things, as long as you can kind of keep your nose clean and stay connected to your case manager, then you can graduate to housing. Sometimes there's other steps in the middle, like they'll make you go to treatment or you have to access mental health care to qualify for the housing. You know, everyone's staircase is a little bit different, um, but you can see that in that model along the way, there's a million ways to fall out. Um, and the really insidious thing is that under that model, it's very, very easy to lose most people along the way and then blame them for it. So instead of you know, the model or the organization perpetuating that model, having to say, hey, our success rate of getting people housed is really low, <laughs> which is kind of the truth, they're able to say, yeah, most most people don't make it through our program because they're just not dedicated enough. And that leans right back into that myth of people don't want to work their way out of homelessness. They'd rather X, Y, and Z than, you know, than, than do the work. Um, and yet we never critique the process or the services that are being rendered and whether they are accessible, whether they're desirable, whether they're humane even. Yeah. It's, and it's so, again, I love how you talked, frame that out, like, you know, almost blaming the victim, right? We, we, we tend to blame people mm -hmm. for who are the victims of circumstances beyond their control. And then we penalize them and then try to hold them accountable to steps that they, I love the, even the latter language that, or the staircase, I think, I forget which one, um, I think is a really good, really good picture. Um, so tell me like, I mean, so again, I, what I love about the work that you do, Kevin, is that the way you articulate, um, you know, the realities of homelessness, uh, for those who are for those who are housed and those people who may not have a full grasp or, or may not be proximate to the issue. Um, and to that end, I know, again, tell us about, uh, the name of your book, um, what's you know when it's like again what officially where they can go to find it but and even like what you've learned because i know again i've been working as you know i've been working on a book as well the, the, the problem is <laughs> uh, i know you've probably experienced this but like i've been working on this book for like four or five years and I, like it's just like I, I told someone recently i was like i've been working for five years in this project and i just got to 100 pages um in part because I started off with like this huge thing. Cause the, cause the, the issue of homelessness is so massive that it's just so hard to coalesce this, the issue into something that's more like succinct and that's bites that's um, accessible. Um, so I'd even like to, you know, tell me a little mm -hmm. bit about your process too. So tell us the name of the book, 
uh, when we can, when it's coming out and then like what, what your goal is for the book and um, yeah. And what the process has been in, in writing it and what you've learned through the process. Sure. Yeah. So the book is called uh, Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness. Uh, it's available at pretty much every bookseller. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Bookshop, Barnes and Noble. Um, yeah. You can go to your local bookstore, ask them to order it, kind of whatever, whatever mode of getting books that you like, you can, you can get it. Uh, it comes out August 9th. So it is pre-orderable right now, but it won't be out until then. Um, as the title kind of speaks to, I am writing to a, to an audience of, of faith, um, that is, you know, my community. Um, obviously I feel like I could, could have written a book just about homelessness generally, but I'm really interested in the ways that, uh, Christians play into and perpetuate the myths around homelessness, as well as the opportunities that they uniquely have to address it, um, through, through theology and also through church spaces and institutions. Um, I think that churches really have both a theological basis to address homelessness, but also are major property owners <laughs> in this country. And uh, that there's a, a really big opportunity there um, to use that responsibly. Uh, to your question about my process, I mean, I'm similar to you. I really, as soon as I started working in this field, I've always been a writer. And so I thought, okay, if I, if, if this ends up being what I do for a while, I'm going to end up writing about it for sure. And it took me a really, really long time knowing that I wanted to write a book to figure out what the book was. And for me, it was when I kept interrogating, like what, what is keeping us from ending homelessness? Like we know the approach that works housing first, we have the money because we already spend it on policing and hospitalization and incarceration. And like, all we need to do is just spend that money differently. Like, so what's, what's the problem here? And it really, it's all those myths that we've been talking about. Um, and when I kind of dug deeper on those myths, I realized that kind of the central myth that, um, that permeates all of them is that, People who are poor or people who are experiencing homelessness in some way deserve it. And for me, that's the antithesis of the Christian view of grace, which says we don't get what we deserve. Um, what we deserve does not factor into how God views us and what God offers us. So when I realized those two things were intention, I realized, okay, I have a thesis here. And that's kind of that grace can be the through line of my book as I apply it to all the different areas that impact homelessness, like housing, mental health, uh, substance use, isolation. Um, and yeah, that, that really helped for me coalesce the book into kind of one central argument. That's awesome. I mean, it, and here's, so I'll say a controversial statement. I'll make a controversial statement and we can, we, we can make this because we're both, we both, I think, identify as people of faith. And um, so mm -hmm. why does it seem like Christians are sometimes the most vocal antagonists to, um, you know, evidence-based solutions to homelessness? 
Well, we can make that statement also because it's supported by data. Um, it's a really, really crucial thing that inspired me to write this book and helped me whittle it down like I just described was a study that Washington Post and the Kaiser Foundation did that uh, basically offered people two choices, that people are poor because, or largely because, and their two options were uh, lack of effort or difficult circumstances beyond their control. And Christians were more than twice as likely as non-Christians to say lack of effort. Um, so again, it's not controversial. <laughs> it's data supported that, that, that Christians really believe this myth. And um, in many ways, it's antithetical as much as, you know, you and I would, would argue to, you know, what, what Jesus was about and what this faith community should be about. But um, I mean, our, our faith tradition has been really, uh, really infected uh, by white supremacy and uh, manifest destiny and Protestant work ethic and prosperity gospel and all of those things are really deeply interconnected that says a certain group of people uh, is specially blessed by God uh, to take and get whatever they want by any means necessary. And because we got it, we <laughs> deserved it. And everyone who didn't, doesn't. Um, and that is a hell of a thing to try to disentangle. And there's other people that are doing that work on a much grander scale uh, than I certainly am. But um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's part of the DNA right now. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things. I, I was on a panel discussion on Friday. Um, at one of my colleagues did a, a photo exhibit of the people that of, of, of friends that we've met in the street, and it's beautiful. Uh, so if you're in the New York City area, and I think you still have a few weeks left to go to uh, Redeemer West Side, um, the West on West 83rd, um, this art exhibit is up. Uh, I think through June, the early part of June. Um, my friend Corey Hayes and colleague has taken 12 portraits of, of friends that we've met in the street. And um, we did a panel discussion on Friday and we talked about this very thing. And um, one of the things that I, I have pointed out, you know, over the years and uh, is just this idea of, you know, recognizing that we don't owe our homeless friends and, and neighbors uh, our pity uh, or even our compassion. Uh, because if you're a person of faith, if you ascribe to the belief that Jesus identifies with those who are in the street. Um, and, you know, the we, Shane Claiborne and I talked about this in episode one of my podcast about how foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Um, and then obviously Matthew 25 with, you know, whatever you've done for one of these, least of these brothers and sisters of mine you've done to me. And there's this idea, like as, as, a, as a Christian, if you're a self-described follower of, of, this, of this rabbi uh, from the, you know, Palestinian rabbi, brown-skinned Palestinian rabbi, um, then, you know, then we actually have the opportunity to experience Christ in the people that are, are struggling around us in a way that is transformational. And, and so to the point where we actually owe them our gratitude, not just our, our compassion. Um, and, and it's, and it's yes. interesting because I think, um, you know, like all the things you mentioned earlier in terms of just this sort of common 
uh, sort of cultural assumptions that we make, you know, blaming the victim, um, sort of the myth, what I would describe as the myth of the American meritocracy, um, you know, this idea that we all start off mm-hmm. at the same place. And if we just work hard, we'll get to where we are and we f- fundamentally get what we deserve, which, again, anyone uh, who starts thinking critically about their own experience will realize is, is, is hogwash. Um, but it's it's interesting when it comes to homelessness and, and engaging with people who are on the margins, I, I feel like this would, I, I'm excited about the, your book because I, again, I think it's a call to action to people of faith who are on the sidelines who might be missing out um, on an experience with the resurrected Lord um, through their homeless neighbors. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm just pumped to, 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 he- to read it and um, to hopefully, you know, hear what the impact of it is as, as people go out and get it and, and feel, you know, challenged and inspired to experience, uh, experience Christ through their, their homeless neighbors. Yeah. It's, I love the way that you articulated that because, um, I, I make a very similar move in my book with the Matthew 25 passage. Um, and the lead up to it is talking about how, you know, the stereotypical conservative approach is these people don't deserve help. They need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. On the flip side, though, the very typical liberal approach is, oh, these poor little babies, I need to help them and they need to accept exactly the help that I tell them because I know what's best for them. And um, whether along those party lines or not, Christians fall into both of those camps too. And so it really is an invitation to kind of dispel both of those myths. And um, the way that I kind of do that with that Matthew 25 passage is that talking about how if if we actually took seriously the idea that every unhoused person we encounter is Jesus, if we actually took that literally, we would enter those encounters very differently, Right. Um, and I talk about how early on in this work, I, I had to, I had to get rid of my savior complex that I definitely entered this work with, um, because if, if every unhoused person is Jesus, there is no more room for a savior in that relationship. (laughs) Right. Um, and that that's, that is an encounter that I should be entering not to transform them so much as to be transformed myself. Um, and that's not to say that I have nothing to offer them, right? Like my resources, my, my privilege, um, my skill set affords me an ability to help them navigate systems that are intentionally built for them not to be able to navigate, right? Like I have a role to play in helping, uh, but it has to be in partnership. It has to be uh, in solidarity and joining and not in a hierarchical structure of I'm in charge and you, as long as you do what I say, you're going to get where largely I think you need to go. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. Um, so again, just for those of you who are, who are listening, um, I'm, you know, chatting here with Kevin, uh, his book, Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness. Um, you can pre-order it um, in a lot of places. I'm going to go ahead. I'll put it in the notes uh, for the podcast um, for where you can find that book and you can can check it out. Um, my last question that I want to ask you, my friend, is um, what's what's some what are what's one practical thing that anybody listening can do 
uh, today to engage and help the people around them who are either struggling with homelessness or uh, in, in some kind of uh, emotional or financial crisis? What, just give us some practical ways that the average people, like what is something that you might do when you visit another city? I know you've been traveling a little bit lately. Um, like what's something you do to in, when you see someone on the street uh, who's homeless that, that anyone can do? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess, you know, it's as simple as not looking the other way. And, you know, that's a practice that I try to maintain. And, and I'm someone who likes to have really good boundaries and that, you know, I work, I work at a homeless service provider, you know, 40 hours a week. So I'm not necessarily in my off time going to like every single person I, I see and like, you know, uh, extending that work to, you know, 24 seven. Um, but I, I am always intentional about if I walk past somebody, uh, I try to have an opportunity to make eye contact with them and acknowledge their existence and say good morning or how's it going or, or anything, even just in passing. Um, I think there's enough, you know, enough about homelessness that is a form of social exclusion that we don't need to add to that by pretending that they're also invisible, right? Um, so it's a, as small as that to as big as having a conversation or at least getting to know someone's name. Um, I think those things are, again, mutually transformative and are the things that ultimately will shake policy from the ground up. Amazing. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for the years of service that you've put into this, uh, this very important issue. Again, just personally, I know it's, it's always exciting and encouraging to meet people who have a love uh, for, you know, for the, for those that we get to serve, we have the privilege of serving uh, and learning from. Um, just really appreciate uh, your, you know, even just what you post on Twitter and how you engage this topic is always just so dignifying. And um, I would describe it as God honoring. Um, and so I just really appreciate uh, your time today. And again, hopefully we can have another conversation maybe when the book's out and uh, and we can and talk more about kind of what's what's being done at that time and kind of compare notes. But either way, thank you for your time today. Absolutely. Thanks awesome. so much. Have a wonderful day. And for my listeners who are checking this out again, neighbors with no doors.com, or you can find us on Twitter at with no doors uh, or Instagram at neighbors with no doors. And I will catch you guys on the other side. I am so grateful that you took the time to listen to this episode of the neighbors with no doors podcast. I hope you found it helpful and empowering. Just so you know, I'm releasing a book that is also going to be called Neighbors with No Doors, and I would love for you to check it out. You can find it at neighborswithnodoors.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow along on Instagram and Twitter. I'd like to thank my producer, Rex Harson for helping me put this together, as well as the many guests who gave me the gift of their time and their story. Have a great day. We'll see you next time.